I'd be lying if I told you I knew what to say tonight. I'd be less than brutally honest with you if I were to tell you that I felt that I had permission to try to speak and to say something in the wake of what happened this week. To you, God, silence is praise. I felt the entire week as if I didn't have permission, wasn't sure what to feel. It was a tale of two cities. And for many of us who were lucky enough to be living on the Upper West Side, we could only watch in horror what was going on around the area. Our hearts extended, our mouths wide open with shock. And I imagine for many of us, we're in a liminal space. The city is in a liminal space. And before we rush to run marathons, which thankfully have been canceled now, before we rush anywhere, it behooves us to honor at least that truth that we don't know. After any natural disaster, the race among readers of holy texts to say something profoundly stupid regarding the reason something like this happens is is common. And in particular this week, with the reading of the week, Parshat Vayera, the tale of the destruction of Sodom Amora, Sodom Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, We can imagine what Westboro and others have in mind. And even in subtle ways, the reflex, the instinct is there. But I side along with the Ramam, with Maimonides and the guide and others like God in the book of Job who prefer to to not give excuses or provide rationalizations or justifications for something that is essentially beyond. But at the same time, reading the events of this week into the Parsha in search of insight is one of the most important activities that we engage in. It is what the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe called being up with the times, meaning the Parsha of the week, the portion of the week. It is a kiyum, it is a fulfillment of let the Torah be new in your eyes every day. So in that light, and with your permission, a number of values shine through from the reading this week. The Parsha begins, and Abraham sitting, wounded, recuperating, recovering, all 99 years old of him, having just had very delicate and painful surgery, nonetheless is spry enough, agile enough, energized enough, caring enough, vital enough, 
in the words of the Torah, Vayar Vayorat, he saw three angels. And in direct contrast to his nephew Lot later on in the Parsha, he doesn't just invite them into his home. Vayorat's Likrasam, he runs out to get them. An act of absolute self transcendence. I'm in pain. But here's an opportunity to serve. Avram, in his gesture, a paradigm of hospitality for every generation and for each and every one of us. In the language of the Midrash, Shayat, Olo, Patuach, Lechola, Ruchos, that his, his tent was open to all sides. The membrane of Avram's life was permeable. And in this moment, he counteracts what my dear friend Rabbi Mishael Sion called today when he wrote about this week, the anxiety of permeability, the anxiousness of there not being strong enough boundaries to hold. And that anxiety came to bear. And as a response, we have seen over and over again hundreds of Avrahams all around the city, all around this region, whose doors are wide open, whose windows, whose couches, whose kitchens. To counteract the anxiety of permeability, we have the confidence of connection. The interconnectivity that says, Kulanu we each have one, one fate. Each and every one of us. Each and every one of us, and Avraham Avinu, each and every one of us, with that sense that if I run out to you and see you in pain, that in some way I participate in your pain. The value of hospitality, the value of reaching out, and the deeper knowing of interconnectivity is Avram Avinu. Avram, our forefather. The second value. From an odd place, the nephew of Avram, Lot, who lives in that doomed city, and when he's told that the city will be destroyed, he reacts, of course, doesn't believe it. And finally, the angels take him by the hand, he and his wife and his two daughters, and they leave the city. And Lot complains. He says, as we're moving forward, as we're going to that place which will be a refuge, Lot says, I'm not going to make it, Lot says. I can't make it all the way to that place before the destruction hits. Maybe leave me in a small place over here. There's a, a small place called Mitzar, which means a small place. I'm not going to make it all the way there, Lot says. But help me get somewhere close, maybe a short distance, and that will be enough for now. When we think about the daunting task of rebuilding, when we think about the $50 billion, the economic hardship, not to mention, of course, that which can never be retrieved, it can seem monumental. In fact, it is overwhelming. Each and every one of us, this Shabbos and next week and the week after, will be saying, there's no way for me to make it all the way over there. 
It's too far away, these recovery conversations. And that archetype, that image of Lot, Mizaroshel, from the seed of our ancestor, says, if only I can get a little further. If I can find refuge in a small place, in some pocket of good, maybe a little step forward. I won't go all the way, but maybe a little bit. Our third value from this week's portion is also from an interesting place. Lot's wife. We don't know her name in the Torah. All we know is that she looked back. And the rabbis are of two opinions about what it was that made her look back. Clearly she was told by the angels in the story, don't look behind you. Don't look behind There is an opinion that her looking back was motivated by something that we'll get to a little bit later. But I want to read to you a fascinating, powerful midrash. We're told that the name of Lot's wife is Irit. Irit. Sounds eerily similar, similar to the word ear, city. Irit. Irit ishto shalot nichmeru rachama al benosea anesuos vihibita leachorea veros imholchos acharea imlo. Irit, the wife of Lot, her compassion was welling up within her for her daughters that she, her married daughters that she had left behind. So she looked back to see if they were walking with her. Veros acharea shchina. In this reading of the Midrash, this intense reading that is adopted by the Ramban Nachmanides, why does Lot's wife look back? She had to look back. She had no choice. She left her daughters behind. Lot's wife is walking, running away, and she starts to think about all that was left behind. She thinks of her home. She thinks of her images, her pictures. She thinks of everything, all of her life in Sodom. And most powerfully, she thinks of her daughters that she's left behind in the destruction. There will be moments, many, where we won't be able to look forward, where the only thing that we can do is look back And according to this Midrash, guess what, everyone? It's natural. It will be natural for us to look behind, to wonder what was, to try to salvage in memory that which is no longer tangible. We won't forget soon those who are no longer with us, who went out to take a look at the storm sky and never came back. Children. Each and every one of us will be looking behind quite frequently. And in those moments, it is as it should be, as we mourn appropriately. There's a last value, the fourth one, which connects with Lot's wife. 
Abraham in the beginning of the Parsha, in the most, maybe the most famous moment of his career. Abraham is involved in not only being this warm-hearted, loving, dedicated, devoted servant of God, but Abraham is seen as a full advocate and a humanitarian who in spite of and perhaps because of his own suffering cares radically for his fellow human beings. In this glimpse into the pre-catastrophic scene in this Parsha, Abraham begins a line of argumentation that has a rich history and though it began with Abraham, didn't end with him. Moses and Jeremiah, Chabakuk, the rabbis of the Gemara, of the Talmud, the Hasidic masters, including the Kedushas Levi, the Breditschever, all engaged in this radical and subversive dialogue with God. In a chutzpah klape shmaya, in an audacity to storm heaven, in an audacity to argue. How is it possible, you ask? How is it possible for Abraham in this week's Torah portion to say to God, Vayigash Avraham, Vayomer, Ha'aftisper, Tzadikim Rasha? Will you also gather in the righteous with the not righteous? Maybe there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you also bring them in and not, and not be just? You are the judge of the whole earth. Will you not judge favorably? Avram Avinu stands in. And if we were Abraham today, and we are, we would say, in the theology of presence, we'd say, God, if you are here, how could it happen? God, how could you let this happen? And if we were to turn from a theological stance, we might ask Abraham, what other message might you give? Confronting heaven, okay, but maybe I don't believe in that kind of God. Who am I to confront? As we come together to remind ourselves of our common core, our radical permeability, it would be comforting to silently and pleasantly hold space. But we know Abraham would want more of us tonight. I'd like to be cliche and say that storms predictable aspects of global climate change are what our current use of fossil fuels is getting us. And that therefore our political, economic, technological, educational, and spiritual leaders are doing everything in their power to help us change our ways. But where is the outcry? The demand. The absolute shriek of assertion that now and not sometime after the fabled future economic recovery, now is the time to change. Where are the nonstop headlines in the press about the relationship between human action and the size of these storms? The headlines proclaiming presidential debates completely ignore most important issue of our time. Where are the heads of cabinet departments, speakers of the House, and leaders of the Senate, presidents, would-be presidents, vice presidents, and joint chiefs of staff, and all the others sworn to protect our country? Where are they? Where is the deafening din of condemnation? When a politician dares, as one did, to distinguish the health of the planet from the well-being of our families, to be angry 
to be critical is not unspiritual. To say loudly as we can to anyone who will listen, this isn't okay, this isn't okay, this is hurtful. It's not some abstraction called global warming, it is global scorching, as Arthur Waskow says. It's not an environmental problem. People are killed. Lives are shattered. Homes and property are lost. Beloved landscapes are scarred, and our economy is subject to a dreadful blow. So in the tradition of Avraham and Moshe, Jeremiah, Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Heschel and Michael Lerner and Aung San Suu Kyi and Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring launched the environmental movement and said, as she spoke truth to power, She knew she was playing with fire. But, she wrote, knowing what I know, there would be no future peace for me if I kept silent. Knowing what we know, we must speak out. So Lot's wife looked back She dwelled in the past and refused to look towards the future. Lot's wife couldn't let go of what was and focus on a solution. And we too act like Lot's life when we go back to things as usual, looking behind us, grasping for what was instead of building what could be. I know that Rabbi Alan Liu had a beautiful teaching he said about the Jewish day of destruction, the day of mourning and sadness, Tisha B'Av. He said that inevitably when he lived in Israel, he would turn on the TV on that day of mourning, on that day of destruction, and there would always be Isaiah Gaffney, the noted historian, who was always called in to speak. And then to his right, he would have a right-wing individual, and then on his left, a left-wing individual. And the right-wing individual would invariably say that the temple was destroyed because of the failure of the Jewish people to unite against the enemy militarily. The left would say the temple was destroyed and Israel was conquered by the Romans because of the intolerance of the religious right. And Gaffney in the middle would say Both of you are wrong. Rome was absolutely invincible. And its huge armies were marching through the world, mowing down everyone in their path. Nothing could have been done to stop them from taking Jerusalem. No matter how tolerant the religious right were, no matter how unified the armies of the Israels might have been, it would have happened anyway. And then Rabbi Lu says, so what then does our tradition mean when it blames us? for the destruction of the temple. It would have happened anyway. And he says beautifully, he said, the rabbis and Moses, they didn't care at all about history. They weren't historians. They were spiritual leaders. And spiritually, the only question worth asking about any conflict, any recurring catastrophe is this. What's my responsibility for it? How am I complicit in it? How can I prevent it from happening again? 
by that teaching, I confess tonight. Never before have I ever spoken about environmental issues. Never before from this pulpit have I ever talked about the rising water levels. As a spiritual leader, I have been complicit. As a spiritual leader, I could hear reports and not report them and not speak out against them, but no more. It is a sad, sad day in many ways. Who could have imagined that on Yom Kippur, as we all sat here together saying, Mi ba'esh, umi ba'mayim, that we would see it happen in such a stark way. But we are reminded at the end of the Sanatokif of that prayer, Ushuva, Utfila, Utstaka, Ma'avir, Nisra, that with reflection and introspection, with the profound courage to face what we don't face, with the values of hospitality and, imper- and permeability of reaching out. I'll tell you one last story. I'm sorry. I was walking with, with my son Bear. You know I always have to finish with a bear story. I'm walking with my son Bear. It's the morning after. It was, I think, Wednesday morning. And uh, uh, our executive director, Eileen Samoth, had been out. And she said, you can come out. And she said, go to 88th Street. You'll see something remarkable. She said, you'll see a tree that fell down. So we walked over and we saw this tree. And, uh, and it had fallen and touched the top of this man's car, just barely making a dent. And he had ingeniously taken a very thick rope and tied it to the tree uh, that, that was still standing, and then he was holding the, the, the thick branch that had fallen. It was precariously held right on top of the trunk uh, of the, I'm sorry, the top of the tree. And he took a jack and he pumped the jack up so that the tree was lifted off and he was going to drive the car out, but he couldn't get it. He had two guys helping him. And there were a group of like 10 New Yorkers who like were taking pictures. <laughs> taking pictures. Because you know what? It was still, they were still in shock. And then one person said, hey, Come on. And like, it was amazing. Like, uh, like a river flowing. They all, it's like they woke up and they all ran over. They, they kind of, they, they defrosted and they thawed out from their New York permeab- you know, impermeability. And they all went over and, they, and you could see like 20 guys holding up this tree, you know. And everybody giving directions. It was like, you know, no, go this way, go that way. <laughs> and when I got back from helping, because my son, Bear watched me do the whole thing. And I came back, and he, and he looked at me, and he was like, and Bear never speechless, but he was looking at me. And then we walked a couple of feet, and he said, Abba. I said, yeah. He said, how come, what were you doing? I said, I, said, I, was, I was helping the men lift the tree. And he said, why were you helping the men lift the tree? And I thought, and I said, what do you mean? Like, I, I, I didn't even know what to say. I said, because that's what we do. That's what we do. He needed a hand. And he was just looking at me, and he, and he got it. He said, okay, that, that's what we do. <laughs> we help each other. He got it. He's the son of Avram Avinu. He has Avram beating in his heart. And so do each of us. No. May we be held by the power of love and compassion. May we courageously look out for those who are in need and open our hearts and invite them inside. 
May this powerful country in general and this region in particular, which has been so painfully scarred by this storm, be healed and comforted. And may we all awaken to our interdependence and interconnectivity. May those feelings of connection that have been firmly rooted in us during these days and months and in the years ahead, as we recover and regain our sense of potency and capacity, may we remember to help one another and think beyond this moment, establishing a world that is grounded in reciprocity, respect, humility, courage, and love. Amen.